before us who have taken the communion this morning. Good morning. Uh, if you get a second, just turn to the person beside you or somebody you don't know and say, Good morning, glad you're here. My name is fill in the blank. Just a uh, quick, quick saying hello. <clears throat> Thanks so much for being here this morning. Thanks for those who are watching online. Um, Charles Dickens wrote Tell of Two Cities in 1859. He says this, It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. I want to ask you to imagine with me this morning that you are in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And what we know is there's a great crowd in Jerusalem that day. It become uh, a place where all the people were coming to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Scholars tell us that could be up to 2 million people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate. It's almost like this carnival-like, parade-like atmosphere And as people prepare to observe and participate in one of the most important feasts, they get word that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And there's this buzz that begins to happen among the crowd. And as we look back, the tale of two cities that Dickens wrote about seems to fit the day. But instead of two cities, it's two kingdoms at play against each other. God's kingdom or man's kingdom. So the crowd gathers and and probably starts to make their way as best they can to get the best position to see Jesus. He's coming to Jerusalem. And, And who would have been in the crowd that day? What faces? What people? Think of me with me who was there. Think about our study in Mark so far. People who had been on the beach and watched Jesus say, throw it on the other side. Haul in a great catch. Somebody standing there saying, he healed me of leprosy. I couldn't talk. I couldn't walk. And now, I'm here. One lady said, I I was so embarrassed. I, I was caught in adultery. And he took down embarrassment for me. I was one of the ones on the hillside trying to figure out how in the world he fed 5,000 people. I ate that day. I just touched the robe of his, the hem of his garment, and I was healed. I was in the synagogue 
that day they, he cast out demons. I was in the house that day when this man was lowered through a roof where they cut it open, and the guy says, that was my roof. The guy says, I was blind, and he spit on the ground, and he made eyeballs for me, and he, he made me see. And did you hear about Lazarus? These are the people in the crowd. Bartimaeus, maybe Lazarus, those who had been healed. And what were they thinking? What, what were they kind of planning in their mind? It's a great question, but the greater question is this. What was Jesus thinking? You know, it's a rare thing that all four Gospels record the same event in Jesus' life. But what happens on this day in Jesus' life is recorded by all four of the Gospel writers. This passage, this particular Sunday in the life of the church is traditionally called Palm Sunday. And traditionally you hear a message on the triumphant entry of Jesus. And I believe if we examine this particular day in the life of Jesus, we're going to find a greater understanding not only of the people, not only of the events, but about the purpose of Jesus and the gospel in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 11 and John chapter 12. We're going to look at both of those passages this morning. The title of the message this morning is, Look, Your King is Coming to You. Let me pray for us before we get into the message. God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity you give us to come to have a day of the week where we pause, where we join with other believers to be encouraged, to be nurtured, to be heard, to be seen, to be reminded that we are part of a bigger body. God, we thank you for the time where we can come and, and rehearse truth through song and through worship. God, I thank you for the time we can pause and pray and talk to you and you talk to us. And God, we come to this part of the service where we open your word and we ask you to speak to us in all truth, in all wisdom, and that you would find our posture and our position ready to receive all that you want us to have this morning. And not only to receive it, but to respond to it. So God, would you help us, we pray by your spirit, to speak to us this morning. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you? That they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's six different aspects that we'll look at this morning, and I know that when I say the word six different aspects, that you look at your watch and go, well, I just want to let you know, too, that this clock up here doesn't work anymore. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means for you, but we're just going to put it right there. Six different aspects that I'll briefly cover this morning, and hopefully this will help us not only this morning, but throughout the week to begin processing what we have called Holy Week and why it's so significant in our lives. 
The first point is from John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. The contradictory feeling that's in the air around Jerusalem. John 12, 12 and 13. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This Palm Sunday is Jesus' final presentation to the nation. Uh, the crowd coming out of the city of Jerusalem are waving. They're cutting down branches. They're laying it in front of him. They're laying it on the road, throwing their coats on the road, almost as if it's like this red carpet mentality. And Jesus is coming. It's the climax of Jesus' ministry. It's the climax of his healing. It's the, the pinnacle point of his, his uh, being, the, the person of great teaching, all people are noticing, particularly because he had just brought Lazarus back to life, and they want to find out how that happened, who that happened to, to find out Jesus and to find out Jesus. There's no more interest. There's more interest in Jesus at this point than there ever has been in that moment in Jesus' life. And this enthusiasm is contagious, and people start uh, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this word Hosanna is this word that means to save. And in fact, the word Hosanna, scholars believe, is not only to save, but it's a prayer request, a crying out to save me. So the people are shouting, save me! Save me! Blessed is the one who can save me. But not a Messiah to follow as much as a messiah to save them from their current situations he the people had known of him performing miracles and they are hoping save me from my circumstance save me from my situation the messiah they desired was about them not about god and we know this because when they didn't get that from him the same crowd began shouting crucify him Now, in addition to the people's selfish applause and the cheers was this attitude of the Pharisees that we're going to look at a little bit more, but they were looking for Jesus to kill him and to kill Lazarus because he was proof of the miracle. So we need to understand this entry into Jerusalem had a contradictory feeling to it. As Dickens says, it was the best of times, but it was also the worst of times. It was a season of light, but it was also a season of darkness. There was praise and there was hatred. There were cheers, shouting cheers, because their hope had come. And the reality of the reason Jesus was entering Jerusalem was a, a far reality from anybody's mind. But God's plan was going to be fulfilled, which is, brings us to our next point. The prophecies that were fulfilled in Mark 11, verses 1 through 7, and John 12, verses 14 and 15. Listen to Mark 11. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, 
What are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. John chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now Mark 11 gives us a little bit more detail in the account of finding this young donkey. We read in that account, he sends two of his disciples out, find this donkey, it's going to be tied up. If anybody says anything, say the Lord needs it, and then they'll let you have it, and you tell them you'll bring it back later. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus goes out, finds the donkey, gets it. The owner says, take it. It's an unbelievable prophecy. Now, Jesus is making a huge statement by riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. It's not something that uh, would happen if you were a conquering king. In fact, a conquering king or even a new king would ride in on a huge horse to display his power and to display how big he had won the battle. What Jesus is saying, in a sense, is that he comes not to make war, but to make peace by riding on the donkey, and the peace is going to come through the cross. Now, when you also look at the branches of palm trees, when they met out to meet him, it's a straight prophecy out of Zechariah and and him riding on the donkey. Listen to what it says in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So John gives us this picture of, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a donkey. In addition to that, the words that they're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is straight out of Psalm 118. And it's, been known as the Jewish song. It's the song they sing all the time, and it's a conquering song. So they are acknowledging and hoping that the one who is riding on this colt of a donkey is their conquering Messiah and King. The people are reciting the words of a conqueror song while he, Jesus, is riding in on the peace and humility of a donkey. It's an awesome prophecy and the point of the prophecy fulfilled is this god has been and always will be in control he is always sovereign he lines up every detail he orchestrates everything even a donkey being tied up so two disciples can go get it to fulfill prophecy that was written hundreds of years before that We can trust all his promises, prophecies to be fulfilled all the time. So what does that mean for us? It means that he knows the details of our lives as well. And has been and will continue to orchestrate them to fulfill his purposes and bring them glory. There's nothing, there is nothing that catches God off guard. That doctor's visit with those test results. God knows. That blow-up you had with your spouse, He knows. Kids, that blow-up you have with your parents, He knows. 
parents, that blow up you had with your kid. He knows. He knows our future. He knows the outcome. He's taken all the pieces. And what we're talking about here, even in the life of Jesus, is that we have an all-knowing God. He knows everything. And because He knows everyone and every detail, He can arrange all those details and leaves nothing to chance in our lives. Now, I want to take a real quick minute to look at a couple of minor characters in this story. And the first one is the owner of this donkey. Now, how would you have reacted if you have a donkey tied up outside your house and two guys come and say, I need the donkey? And he just says, why are you untying my donkey? And they say, the Lord has need of it. Now, you don't see any incidents. He just lets the guys take the donkey. And so it started to make me think, how do we respond when Jesus needs something of us? Needs us to respond to his call or his need? How do we respond when he says, you know, I, I I need that relationship to not be separate from me? I need your finances to to not be separate from me. I need all of your life. How do we respond? Like the owner of the donkey? Take it. Because the Lord has need of it. Are we willing to give it to Jesus? Now there's a second, kind of secondary character. And that's the donkey. I mean, just think, just for a second, how proud would you be if you were this donkey to have God riding on your back? And you're going through this procession and they're just throwing branches and coats and you're kind of going, this is like cool. And and just think for a second, there's nobody that's ever going to sit on your back. Everybody from everybody else is going to be downhill. And the stories this donkey's going to have. No one would ever be as significant. All this is part of God's plan and part of his prophecy. Scripture says, or prophesies, that the next time Jesus comes, John tells us in Revelation 19.11, And I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. The first time he came in peace to die, the next time he comes as the judge to wage war. And if the prophecies were fulfilled when he came in peace, you can guarantee that the prophecies will be fulfilled when he comes again. It's significant that God is a sovereign God that holds all these things together for his glory. Next, we see this in John chapter 12, verse 16. We see these perplexed followers. Verse 16 says, These things his disciples did not understand at the time, at the first. 
But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things, and they were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. The disciples were simply confused, and I think it's understandable. They had been tossed to and fro with, with Jesus, saying, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, and he's going to be crucified. And then they get to Jerusalem, and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he in the name of the Lord. And so they're trying to figure out, they're trying to reconcile all this stuff. How could they possibly sort it out? How many of you have ever heard contradicting stories? If you have kids in the house, you know what I'm talking about when you have contradicting stories. And it seems at these times, when, you, when you're hearing one thing or seeing another, or you're seeing one thing and you're hearing this, it, it had to be what the disciples were going through. Jesus, miracle after miracle, Lazarus just raised from the dead. I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. Hosanna, blessed is he in the name of the Lord. I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. Peter says, uh-uh, no, you're not, Lord. And he says, get behind me, Satan. I've got to go to Jerusalem to be killed. Maybe the disciples are thinking, this is like a celebration. This is, maybe, maybe Jesus missed this one. I don't get it. They're confused. How could he die in a crowd like this? They didn't understand, it says, until when Jesus was glorified. Then they remembered. John 14, 26 says this, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. So after the resurrection, when the Spirit comes, the disciples go, Ah, I get it. And you and I have been in situations where we're so confused, so complex, so not understanding what's going on, and all of a sudden the Spirit goes, Boom. This is why. This is what I mean. This is what I'm doing. Same thing happened with the disciples. There's another group that was watching this whole thing, and it was the frustrated Pharisees. Look at verses 17 through 19 of John 12. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason, also the people went, with, went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees are watching this entire thing unfold and they are not liking it at all. The pivotal miracle in Jesus' life was Lazarus being brought back to life. Verses 17 and 18 shows that this news of Lazarus was starting to spread and it was making this impact on people. And so they wanted not only to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill Lazarus. They can't stop people from hearing and believing in this miracle. But they're caught. The Pharisees, these religious rulers, they're caught in the middle because they hear the people praising Jesus. So they can't just run out and kill him. They're really irate, they're really frustrated, they're in a panic, and they're stuck. And verse 
John chapter 11, verse 48 is the underlying reason. We see Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time of that year, said this. If we let him go on like this, talking about Jesus, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It was about what they were going to lose. So what are they going to do? Two verses later, John eleven fifty, it says, It's better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation to perish. We've got to kill him. All this is going on. All this is in the atmosphere. All these players are involved as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Jesus was going to die, but not the way the Pharisees thought. Jesus was going to die for them spiritually, for their souls, not to preserve their physical life or position. All this is happening. Hosanna. The disciples' confusion. The Pharisees that are frustrated. Prophecies being fulfilled. Verses 20 through 24, Jesus talks about his way of glory. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the, into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Verse 20 lets us know that there were some Greeks and Gentiles wandering along in the crowd. And they're curious. They want to know what's going on. Maybe they were asking, who is this guy? And they begin telling him and rehearsing the stories of Jesus. And they say, we want to meet him. We want time with him. And so they go to Philip. Philip, we want to see Jesus. Philip says, I don't know what to do. I'm going to go to Andrew. Andrew, these people want to see Jesus. So they go take the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, to Jesus. Now, I believe verse 23 is a small group of people that somehow they've disconnected from the crowd, and it's just a small group of people, Philip, Andrew, maybe a couple of disciples, and these Gentiles and Jesus. And Jesus sees that they want to know who he is. We want to know about Jesus. And remember what John had said in John chapter 6, verse 37. And the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. We saw that with Bartimaeus. If you cry out to Jesus, you're going to get the attention of Jesus. These Gentiles come. They get the attention of Jesus. And Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, many times, over and over in the New Testament, Jesus has said what? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's not time to me to be glorified. And now, all of a sudden, he says, my hour has come for me to be glorified. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking? This is it. This is really it. His hour has come to be glorified. How disappointed they must have been emotionally when the next words he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it must bear much fruit. And just like that, Jesus is talking about his death again. 
Jesus says to these guys, you really want to know? Here it is. If I do not die, there is no life for anyone. As long as the grain remains in the warehouse, the silo, the barn, it's preserved by the outside shell, but it, it, it can't produce. One author said this, It is only has power to produce anything when it goes into the ground, when all the shell decomposes. And in the decomposing of the shell, the rotting away of the shell, the dying that, of that external grain, life inside begins to flourish. Jesus is saying, unless this grain of wheat dies... No one lives because the grain alone has no fruit. Three words, it remains alone. Meaning that Jesus alone is the only one that could be with his Father because he's the only one that's ever been perfect. I remain alone. There wouldn't be anybody redeemed if Jesus didn't go to the cross and die. From Adam, the end of human history, if Jesus doesn't die, we have no hope. There's no spiritual harvest apart from Christ's death. He must die if anyone is to live. In the Garden of Eden, Satan put forth a plan between Adam and Eve to destroy what God had intended. But God said to them, I will give you a seed, which is Jesus, to crush his head. I love this verse from 1 John 3, 8. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled God's mission. Listen to this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The message is the cross. I must die. But out of my death will come life for you as well. He knew a spiritual harvest could only come out of his death, even death on a cross. And Philippians 2 says that was the joy set before him. You and I as believers are the fruit of Christ's death. Verses 25 and 26. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Over and over, Jesus has said, give up your life, die to yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And some here this morning, some here then, may have said, why? Why, why would I do that? What will be my reward for that? Why would I have to hate this life? Jesus says, because if you serve and follow him, you will be where he is. Warren Wiersbe wrote this a number of years ago when he said, follow me is the sum of our duty, and where I am is the sum of our reward. Meaning that Jesus will always be with us, both now and in eternity. That's why. And without him, we are apart from him for eternity. That's the sum of our reward. Listen, listen to this. The, the gospel has been 
perverted and twisted to think that if I accept Jesus, I'm going to have this happy life. That's not what the gospel's about. The gospel is about being able to be with God and be with Jesus because of Jesus' work, both now and forever. And this is, a, this is a, an amazing verse at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father's going to honor us? If you want to know what heaven is about, it's where God honors the saved sinner, his beloved, because of Jesus. Heaven is nothing we have ever deserved. It's a gracious gift so that we can be with God. In verses 26 through 28, Jesus reminds us again of the road he's on. This road that leads to hell on earth. Man at his worst, but God at his best. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. He knows the cross is before him, and he says this in verse 28. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But it's for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We come to the conclusion of this morning and this passage, and maybe in some ways we've identified with some of the people there, some of the story. I know it's, I know it's Easter. I do know that Easter is next Sunday. But when I think of Jesus and the Palm Sunday and Triumphal Entry, I can't help think of the first line of the Christmas song, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. What's the next line? Isn't that our prayer? Isn't that the prayer of our own heart? Let Matthew receive the king. Zechariah 9, 9. Look, your king is coming to you. And to you, and to you, and to you, and to you. May we allow him to have the triumphal entry into our own heart and life. To turn over the control and give him authority over our attitudes, our situations, and let him define our lives. So we could be at peace with him both now and forever. And that only happens by way of the cross. Seth and the team's going to come. We're going to participate in communion. As he plays the